Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Pastor Steve Keller. All right. Um, I want to welcome all of you today. Uh, You may have been here last week. We started, Mark and I started, an eight-week sermon series, a new series to us, and we're calling it BC Squared, which is Biblical biblical Characters Before Christ. And what we're going to do is take a look at at some of the lives and legacies of people from the Old Testament. Um, Some of these people may be very familiar to you. You might hear the name and go, got it. Uh, Some of them may be very unfamiliar to you. And uh, today, we are going to take a look at somebody who might fall into the latter category. Uh, You heard his name in the dramatic reading, uh, reading through 2 Kings 5. His name is Naaman. And if you've never heard of Naaman, I want to go ahead and tell you, don't feel bad about yourself. Uh, He only appears in one chapter of the Bible, okay? And there are 1,189 chapters in Scripture. So if you miss this one and you miss this man, it's okay. But uh, today he will be familiar to you. Um, Naaman is a man who who has a story in uh, 2 Kings 5 that you can use a lot of words to describe. Um, Words that come to mind for me are fantastic, epic, wonderful, amazing. I find this story to to just be mind-blowing. And and if for nothing else, and there is more than just this one fact, but this is a man who is an absolute outsider to the kingdom of God. He's an outsider to the people of God. He is an outsider to faith in the living God. So Naaman is a guy who could not come... uh, he, he could not come from the outside any more than he does, but by the end of this story, um, he receives a touch from the living God, and his entire life changes. So what we're going to do today is, like the drama, I'm going to read through the whole story for you, and we're going to take it bit by bit, and we're going to pull everything we can out of this story, and you're going to leave here encouraged today. Um, you'll leave challenged And I want you to pay attention to one thing as we go through the story, and it is the contrast, okay? So it is the contrast that appear in this story that all the lessons come to us, okay? So y'all ready? Let's pray, and then let's go. Father God, thank you for today. And, And Lord, I just rejoice in this fact that we right now are putting ourselves underneath the living Word of God. And there, there are powerful words all throughout literature. Um, Lord, ink has been taken to paper before, and sometimes it impacts us, but there is nothing that comes close to the living Word of God. And so today, I, I just pray that you would help deaf ears to hear by your Spirit, that blind eyes would see in, in any way or anywhere that, that we're hung up or we're stuck. Father, may your Word just pierce through all of that. And God, would you do a great thing in us as we listen today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Here we go. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Okay, before we get to the action, I want to point out uh, just a few things here. Uh, Number one, this man, Naaman, is a military commander, okay? He is not a foot soldier. He's not a private. 
He, he, you know, he's not in the middle of boot camp. This guy is one of the biggies, all right? So think General David Botorf, think Rear Admiral. I mean, Naaman is a man of clout in the army, okay? He's a, he's a man of uh, uh, just, just big timer in the Aramean army. And just so you know, when we say Aramean army, we are talking about modern day, does anybody know it? Syria. We, folks, we are talking about Syria, Okay, so Naaman, officially, uh, technically, he is not just an outsider to Israel, he is an enemy of the people of God that the Syrians were at that time. But here's the second thing, despite being an enemy of God, Scripture says that the Lord was with Naaman. The Lord had given him victory in battle in times past, and that's just a mind-blower, Here is this man who is an enemy of God, and yet God has worked through him, and God has given him success. So those are the first two things. Now, now, good for Naaman, right? Well, well, there's also a bad for Naaman. Naaman has a major problem in his life. It is a physical issue, and it is called leprosy, all right? Today, we have a cure for leprosy, all right? It, It is a treatment of antibiotics. It can be knocked out, the infectious nature of it taken away back then, no cure for leprosy. Leprosy was a slow, painful march to the death. So here is a man, he is terminally ill despite all these wonderful things about him, all these things going for him. So what is Naaman to do? Well, let's see. Verses 2 and 3. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. She served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Um, did, Did anybody realize what just happened in the story? God just walked into the story, okay? God just started working. He entered this thing, and here's how he did it. Um, First of all, even though Aram is not at war with Israel, they are sending out raiding parties, and that was a very common practice. We actually don't know if they sent raiders into Israel, but on one of their raiding expeditions, they capture, of all people, a young girl from Israel who is full of of faith in the living God. Is that a coincidence? Um, I don't think so, okay? To, to, to take the, the, the God movement here even further, she ends up serving of all the people that she could serve in Israel, she ends up serving Naaman's wife. This girl sees Naaman, takes one good look at him and says to his wife, well, I've got news for you. We have a cure for leprosy in Israel. It's called the living God. If Naaman goes to our prophet, our God will heal him. God is here big time, all right? Verses 4 and 6, Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold and ten sets of clothes. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes, Reuben, you did it beautifully, and said, am I God? 
Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. Now, what just happened in the story is the God activity just went from here, well, it's already at a pretty high level, from here to higher than I can reach, okay? And here's how we know. This young woman goes, go, goes to name his wife and says, we have a cure for leprosy. There is no cure for leprosy, all right, to, to everybody in the passage. So she goes and said this outlandish thing, and then God moves on Naaman's heart. He takes her seriously. I mean, think about it. You, you'd take one look at this. You'd hear this and go, the girl's a crackpot. The girl's crazy. What is she talking about? He believes her. The Holy Spirit has moved on Naaman's heart, and he, and, and, and he takes her at her word. But not only does Naaman take her at her word, when Naaman goes to the king of, of, of Aram, what does the king of Aram do? He takes her seriously. The Lord is moving these men, and, and by the way, it, it's a rustic faith, okay? This is a, a basic rudimentary, doesn't have a whole lot of pieces to it, but these guys are being moved by the Spirit to say yes to what God is up to, to what God is brewing and bubbling up here. And by the way, the king takes it so seriously, he releases Naaman of his army duties, okay, for a little while. You go to Israel. You take an official letter asking for healing prayer. You take some of the treasures of Aram. And, and, and so Naaman sets off, and, and he is loaded down with treasure. Now, will Naaman use the treasure as payment? I don't know what's in his head. Is this a gift? Is this an offering of thanks? We don't really know, but the point is he goes. So the Lord is moving. Faith is building. People are getting in action and saying yes to the Holy Spirit of God. But then here comes our contrast and here comes our twist. The king of Israel gets the letter. Now, the king of Israel is a representative of God. You know, the king of Israel is on the Lord's side. He, he's heard the Lord's name. The king of Israel has been to the temple. You know, he's engaged in prayer and he's heard the messages and, and all of this. So he's on the Lord's side. He reads the letter. He doesn't give God the first thought. He, he doesn't even give Elisha the first, first thought, the prophet of God. And by the way, Elisha is one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. You know, if, if I stopped the sermon and said, okay, real quick, let's take a survey of the top prophets in the Old Testament. Everybody, get out a pen, get out a paper, give me your top five. Elisha's one, two, or three on every one of your lists. He's that big a deal. The king doesn't think of either God or his prophet. Instead, the king does what? He tears his robes. He begins to wail, oh, I'm not God. I don't have the power to do this. Oh, woe is me, woe. And he has a Star Wars moment, by the way. He has a Star Wars moment in here. Anybody remember General Akbar from Star Wars? What does the king say? It's a trap. You know, the king of Aram is, is setting me up to fail so that when his servant comes back unhealed, you know, it, it's, it's going to be war. Why, 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 woe is me. And what we get here is simply the contrast of this simple servant girl who is full of faith. She knows who her God is. She knows what her God can do. She is, her, all of her faith is on that side against this king's distress. 
And so when this thing bubbles up, okay, and this can be a challenge in our lives and big situations that come along, it's a pretty tough, tough deal that's happened here, but she senses right off the bat. She discerns. She believes this is a God moment. That's faith. But the king, on the other hand, the king of Israel, he is living in fear. You know, this thing is unfolding, and, 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 and what does he sense? A God moment? No. He senses Armageddon. You know, it's all over. Verses 8 through 12, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message, why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. And there, there are two things I want us to note about Elisha here that I think are phenomenal. The first is Elisha's courageous faith, okay? This is courageous faith. Back then, kings had unilateral, unquestionable power. You tick off the king, and it really is an Alice in Wonderland moment. It is off with your head. It is straight to the dungeon. The king has the power to wipe him out in a moment. But what does Elisha do when he hears about the king tearing his robes like this? Elisha rebukes him. Dude, what is your problem? Tearing your robes like, 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 like some kind of unbelieving pagan. Are you kidding me? It takes courage to stand up on, in the name of the Lord to a king like that. But the second thing you note about Elisha is his incredible spiritual maturity and his balance. All right? Um, Elisha does not pretend to specifically know exactly what the Lord will do. He, you know, he doesn't say, okay, okay, well, let me figure this out. I'll compute it. Okay, God, you have to move this way. Elisha doesn't do that. Instead, what he does know is that in some way, when this thing is over, God will show up. There is no way the God of Israel with a situation like this is going to remain hidden or silent. Elisha knows that God is going to reach this man, and God is going to reveal himself to this man, Naaman, in some life-changing, unforgettable, culture-shifting moment here. There's, there's one other contrast here that, that I, I don't think we should let go unnoticed, and it is um, the pride of Naaman at this moment. And when I say pride, I mean ego. The ego of Naaman versus the incredible humility of Elisha. You look at Elisha here in 2 Kings 5, and really all he has is uh, his belief in the living God, his belief in the power of God. That is the only tool in his hand. He doesn't have a medical kit, you know, there's nothing, you know, he doesn't have sonograms, there's nothing else. He's got nothing here but his belief in the power of the living God. Look at Naaman, he has got everything. You know, he's got the name, he's got prestige. 
You know, he, he's, he's got a good bit of power. He's also got a cartload of riches along with his letter from the king. And, and Naaman also has something here that's a bit different, a, 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 a bit dangerous, I should say. And he has an expectation, a very specific expectation about how a healing moment ought to happen for a man who's really, really, really important. This thing ought to be big. This ought to be epic. You know, the, I mean, the prophet ought to come out in full prophet dress, whatever that looks like. And there ought to be a waving of a hand and an official pronouncement. And it ought to happen this way. What does Naaman get instead? Basically, he gets instructions whispered through a keyhole. Go down to the Jordan. Bathe seven times. And Naaman here, he's outraged by this. You know, how could I be dismissed like that? How, how does he treat me like anybody else? You know, a common person. And he, get, he gets indignant. I mean, this, this has really rubbed his pride the wrong way. And Naaman just goes storming off in a huff. 2 Kings 5, 13 through 14. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the priest had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you a simple thing, washed and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored, and he became clean his flesh was clean like that of a young boy. The contrast here is, is, is a very simple one. It is Naaman's ego. It's still in the way. But contrasting that against the humble appeal of his servants, just obey the man of God. Just do what God has told you to do. They speak sense to Naaman. And so what Naaman ends up doing at the end is he takes off not only his clothes, but he also sheds his pride, and he goes down into that water. He dips himself in seven times, and if you're thinking, hey, it sounds kind of like a baptism, that's exactly what we got going on here. He, he is going, it, folks, it, it's a self-serve baptism. He goes down seven times, and he comes up the seventh time, and his skin is as fresh as a newborn baby's bottom. It is a beautiful, beautiful testimony to just the power of God. What happens when we say yes? Verses 15 through 19, then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, Elisha refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master, the king of Aram, enters the temple of Rimon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, said Elisha. All right, now, what just happened here is extremely important, although to American ears in the 21st century, it's also extremely weird. So let me just unpack it for you. Um, 
First of all, Naaman not only was healed of leprosy, Naaman has now also become a wholehearted believer in God. So if you're looking for the really, really big miracle in the passage, the leprosy healing is a big miracle. Salvation is the bigger miracle. Okay, there's no greater miracle than salvation. And we know that this man is completely saved. He is completely on the side of the Lord. We have two big clues. Now, the first clue is this. We have his confession. Listen to what Naaman says in verses 15 and 17. First of all, he says, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except Israel. That's a pretty big confession. Okay, have you ever, ever, uh, we've all watched uh, football games, basketball games, end of a game, the team that wins, they interview one of the players, and they just say, you know, I, I just thank God for being with us today. Okay, that's a confession. It's a weak confession, but it's something, right? But look at the strength of this. Now I know there is no God in all the world except for Israel. That's only part one. I will never again make offerings and sacrifice to any other God but the Lord. Huge confession. Second, though, we have his actions, which again sound really weird, but they're awesome. Naaman asks Elisha for a cartload of dirt to take from Israel back to Aram. And, and, and Elisha's response to this is interesting. You know, he, he doesn't sit there and go, hey, you know what, this is superstitious. I mean, this is kind of a cultic practice. Elisha doesn't do it. Elisha grants the request and here's why he does it. He understands that this request is a heart thing. This is coming from a sincere heart that somehow basically understands the principle of holy ground. That's what's going on here. Naaman understands the principle of holy ground. So what Naaman's doing is he's saying, look, I've got to go back to Aram. And, um, and I can't stay here in Israel. But what I can do is I can take a little bit of Israel back with me. Because this place where the Lord lives, the Lord dwells, the Lord is God, this is sacred ground. I want some of this sacred ground. So just understand, even though it sounds weird, this is a huge leap forward in this man's heart. Elisha also allows Naaman to do something else, which is to go into the temple of the God of Aram and bow down with his master. Does that one cause anybody a struggle? Because that's one of those things we ought to look at and go, wait a minute, hold on. We just jumped the rails here. Doesn't it say in the Word of God that we shall have no other gods before us? Do, doesn't it say in, in the Word of God that we're not to bow down to any other idol? Everyone can, can relax because here's what's going on. This is simply the principle of rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's and rendering to God what is God. God did not change Aram's job. He is a man under authority in another country. This is part of what he's, to, what he's doing. So essentially, Elisha's saying, look, you can go and do this thing as a formality. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but continue to render unto God what is the Lord's, which is worship, which is following, which is wholehearted obedience. All right, 19 through 24. After Naaman traveled some distance, Gehazi the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman this Aramean by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him 
and get something from him. You're free to go, "Uh uh-oh, if you want to at this point, because it would fit. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from his chariot to meet him. Is everything all right, he asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master Elisha sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take the two talents of silver, um, said Naaman. And he urged Gehazi to accept them and tied them up in, in, uh, uh, in two bags with two sets of clothing and gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent the men away and they left. Uh, This uh, contrast has a whole lot to do with temptation, okay? If you probably already figured that one out, how we respond to the temptation to sin. Now, Gehazi clearly is on the wrong side of temptation because he takes advantage of Naaman's generosity, of, of his thankful heart. I mean, Gehazi, pardon the pun, he cashes in on the offer. And he walks away with riches, but that's contrasted against Elisha, who refused the riches. He just wouldn't take the money. Why? Because for Elisha, serving the living God is just about simple obedience. It's about a very pure love. But what we get in the end is is we see what each one of these two ministers of the Lord are all about. One of them, Gehazi, is all about serving himself, and the other one, Elisha, is all about serving the Lord. And that kind of plays into another contrast here, which is Elisha's honesty. You know, you you look at Elisha, the integrity he demonstrates all the way through. I mean, even if you just take the king of Israel, honestly going to him with a word of rebuke, lifting up the Lord, that's integrity, that's honesty. And and by the way, Elisha's not done yet being honest. And that's contrasted against Gehazi, who lies to Naaman directly in, in, in the name of the Lord. I mean, you talk about boldface. I mean, this is just a big, boldface lie. And by the way, uh, Gehazi's not done yet either. Um, th- there's something we all might know about lies. I think we all do. Lies always have a way of doing what? Finding us out in the end. So let's go to the end and see what happens. 25 through 27, when he went in, Gehazi, and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere. Gehazi answered. I got a mm on the front row. That's exactly right. But Elisha said to him, was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes? Or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female servants. Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence. His skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. And so how does the story end? Well, pretty much like we expect the lie does its work and finds him out. But there, there is a little twist here. And don't miss the moment because Gehazi has a moment to come clean. 
when Elisha asks him the question. This is the moment to make it right. But see, now Gehazi has got an affliction, and the affliction is called a swollen bank account. He's got a swollen bank account, and uh, he, he is not about to budge. He's got a greedy heart, and it keeps him locked in place. And so Gehazi, because he is in this for himself, he's not in it for the Lord, he steps right underneath the judgment of God, and he is struck with leprosy. And that brings us to the final contrast in this story, which is the contrast between Naaman and Gehazi. And think about it. Naaman, he starts this, this whole adventure. He starts this chapter as an unbelieving, leprosy-afflicted, enemy, pagan, uh, that, that's who he is. But he receives a touch from the Lord. He is made whole and clean enters into the waters of salvation, and now he is wholeheartedly after God. What a journey. Naaman, you did it. We're so proud. But you contrast that against Gehazi, who starts at the other end of the spectrum. He starts off as a physically healthy, beloved servant of God, plugged into ministry, but through deceit, he is afflicted. And he has now removed himself from ministry. He has abandoned God, and, and everything has fallen apart. So, with Naaman and Gehazi, what you have is just two guys who trade places in the story. And it's just the, the, the worst trade of all time for Gehazi, greatest trade through Naaman. But what you see in Naaman is just the wonder of God's salvation. You, you see the, the love of God for someone who is so far outside, they're, they're never going to be on the inside. God rescues them anyway. And then through Gehazi, what we simply see is just that the wages of sin is death. You just can't miss it. So that's the story. Uh, one thing that's interesting about this, this story is that centuries later, Jesus used this story when he's talking to the people of Israel, and, and he's talking to them about their unbelief. He's calling them to salvation, to his message, to, to, to new life in him. And, and Jesus says this in Luke 4, 27. He says, there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And what is fascinating here is that Jesus points right back to this time, and he calls out Naaman. He points to Naaman as an example of what was good and what was right, and, and, and just someone accessing the, the salvation of God. But he's saying, look, Naaman stood out from all of Israel at that time. And I think we've got to ask the question, why is that? Why did Naaman stand out? I mean, is it because Naaman was perfect? Not in the story we just read, he wasn't. You know, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a bumpy ride Naaman has there. You know, he is not perfect in the story. I mean, his reaction's kind of messy. His response to the Lord in the beginning is kind of messy. I mean, it, you know, it, it, it's not some perfect example of faith, but Naaman did two things right. The first thing he did was he listened. He listened to his servants who said, Naaman, don't walk away. Naaman, Naaman, you're about to throw it all away. Listen to what the man of God has said. And Naaman listened to him. The other thing Naaman did that was really remarkable and amazing is he said yes. 
You know, this thing sounded crazy to him. Go dip myself seven times in the Jordan River. I like our water better than this water. And, you know, this whole thing's crazy. But he said yes. He listened and he said yes to the Lord. And that was enough to bring him into wholeness, healing, salvation. And so here we are in a room this morning and for... Let's see, about 30 minutes. I'll give myself a little grace there. For about the last 30 minutes, we've all been listening. We've been listening to the Word of God. My question for us is, is there anything today from the story that we need to say yes to? You know, you you may have heard the story today and just gone, you know what, that fear and faith thing, that contrast, you know, where where the king of Israel is just, he's racked with fear. And here is this young girl saying yes in faith. I want to say yes to faith and no to fear today. Uh, you, you, may, um, you may have been struck with the whole ego thing. I was a little bit. Lord, I, I need to stop saying yes to my pride and my ego and say yes in humble obedience to your word. You might be somebody who's here and, and, and you may completely identify with the story of Naaman and go, you know what? When I walked into this building today, I would say that I am a hostile, unbelieving enemy of God. Today, you can say yes to Jesus Christ. You've heard the word of God. You can say yes to life and life to the full, to salvation, to to, to being set free and absolutely cleansed. And there may be something else that the Holy Spirit nudged you on today as an individual that I didn't even cover. I wonder if we could just take a moment together as a congregation, as, as individual Christians, and just say yes to the Lord. Let me pray for us. And by the way, if you need prayer on anything else, when I'm done, there'll be people down here that would love to pray with you as well on something more personal. But Father God, right now, we just thank you for this epic, beautiful story. And God, I I love that there was nothing about Naaman that made him worthy. There There was nothing in his past that you know, somehow he deserved you to reach out to him, except for the fact that he was your creation. He was a man that you created, that his whole life had lived in a foreign place away from you. And yet in this story, you pursued him. Father God, you spoke sense to him. You loved him to life. And Father, right now, just as, as, as uh, your people, we want to say yes to you, Lord in any way that, that Holy Spirit, you've stirred us this morning, in any way you're calling us to, to take a next step into the kingdom of God. So Lord, today where there's fear and, and fear feels like this enemy that's taken over or God, whether it's worry in someone's life, God, w- w- maybe, maybe it's anger and despair, just some other kind of darkness. Lord, today we, we just want to stand and just say, Our God heals this. Father, I thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ that is empty, the tomb that it's empty as well. I thank you that you have risen from the dead and everything that comes along with death. You are the risen, victorious, overcoming God and you have salvation for us. And we just say yes to it today in Jesus' name. Yes, to life in Jesus. Yes, to not just being a little bit better, but to be in whole in the name of Jesus Christ. So God, right now in, in this moment, we are just lifting up Jesus over whatever it is that ails us. And we are saying yes to you in the name of Jesus. And Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are here to heal your people. 
to touch your people. Lord, to bring life and, and Lord, life to the full in every single one of us. And Father, we just remember this as well, that life that you are here to bring us is not just so we can go home and be a little better than we were or more comfortable, anything like that, but so that we can engage ourselves in the purposes of our God in this community, in this world right now so we can get on mission with you, Jesus. Father, we love you, we honor you, and we thank you that, Father, though we call it the Old Testament, this is new, alive, and fresh for every one of us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. God bless you. Have a great day. We love you. If you need prayer, come and get it. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.